This is the Maxwell Institute podcast. I'm Blair Hodges, and in this episode, I'm joined by Samuel M. Brown, a physician and historian who joins me to talk about his book, In Heaven As It Is on Earth, Joseph Smith and the Early Mormon Conquest of Death, published in 2012 by Oxford University Press. As the book's jacket describes, the world of early Mormonism was besieged by death. Infant mortality, violence, and disease were rampant. A prolonged battle with typhoid fever, punctuated by painful surgeries, including a threatening leg amputation, and the sudden loss of his beloved brother Alvin cast a long shadow over Joseph Smith's own life. Smith embraced and was deeply influenced by the culture of holy dying, with its emphasis on deathbed salvation, melodramatic bereavement, and belief in the providential nature of untimely death that sought to cope with the widespread mortality of the period. Brown also discusses his recent BYU Studies article on adoption theology. Through his historical research, Brown came to believe that in Joseph Smith's theology, humans become the children of God through pre-mortal adoption as opposed to being created in some sort of spirit birth process. Two seemingly unrelated topics, death and adoption, are brought together in this episode of the Maxwell Institute podcast. Brown joined me via Skype, and I apologize for some of the sound issues that happened throughout this episode. I want to start by talking about uh, this attention to death, Sam, that, that you give in your book. And it's a, kind of an unusual and perhaps unexpected theme. So let's start by talking about why you brought that issue to bear on your study of early Mormonism in such a central way, this culture of death idea. Well, it comes back to a conversation that I had with my wife about 10 years ago. She's a religious historian, and we were thinking about the nature of angels in early Mormonism. It had arisen out of my first article in Mormon history, a quantitative study pattern on the work the shepherd brothers did on general conference addresses. Mine was looking at temple dedication prayers over time, and I noticed that there were these named angels that were specified in early prayers, and then in later prayers there was a more general nod toward angels as a generic class of beings. And I'd initially been taking uh, an approach to these ancestors that was in line with my fascination with Mircea Eliade and this notion of sacred ancestors and how tribal consciousness arrives at uh, a new time in comparison with the ancient time or the the yawn time as Elietta talks about it. And as I was talking to my wife, we were uh, vacationing up in Camden, Maine and had stopped in the town just outside the town square wandering about and we're in their uh, colonial cemetery and walking and looking at the stories on the grave markers and it had a eureka moment which was that in early mormonism angels were actually dead people rather than being an entirely separate class of individuals and that theological historical insight combined with the fact that as a as an independent physician i finished my residency just as this was uh, happening as an independent attending physician i was being with people when they died. And I, I realized that Mormonism had something very distinctive to say about what human beings are and what angels 
are, to wit, that angels are a kind of human, and that we in our contemporary world had a very distorted view of life's final moments. And that got me reading pretty broadly in the death studies literature that for a while and in the quirky way of academic jargon was called thanatology. I think it's now just Mm -hmm. called death studies or death and dying studies, but read broadly in that literature and then read in the early modern into antebellum literature about the nature of angels and then return to the primary documents of early Mormonism, which were so easily available, both in terms of Dan Vogel's wonderful work with the early Mormon document series and the great work that Rick Turley's been supervising with getting digital copies of the materials at the church history library available. I, and, you know, the the RLDS Now Community of Christ uh, publishing houses that have provided bound copies of the early Mormon periodicals, all of these rich opportunities to reacquaint myself with the primary literature, and in many cases to acquaint myself for the first time with the intricacies of that primary literature, I just started reading. And as I was reading, that the ubiquity of premature, undesired mortality was stunning and uh, and telling. And as you walk through these newspapers and these journal accounts and these revelation manuscripts, you realize there's an awful lot going on about how people understand themselves in relationship to prior generations and how people understand themselves in relation to the people they love now who will not always be present with them. And that then led me into a a fair bit of reading in antebellum Protestant theology, reading the classics, both the the new evangelical historians and the Mark Knoll, George Marsden uh, kind of camp, and reading more broadly and just the cultural and intellectual history of uh, antebellum America. And from that came uh, ultimately uh, in heaven as it is on earth. There's uh, something also in your background that you, uh, that you didn't draw as much attention to, and that's that uh, you're also involved in medicine, right? You're a, you're a doctor. I'm an intensive care unit physician and mostly a medical professor and medical researcher, but I do also take care of patients. So, so it's you'd be working with with mortality quite often. It seems like in your in your in your everyday occupation. Then did that come to was that brought to bear at all on the topic? Absolutely, and I thought part of. Part of what struck me was the incredible courage of people as they were on their deathbed or as they were uh, the loved ones of someone nearing death. It was striking and stirring to me. And simultaneously, I felt that there were huge cultural gaps in terms of the support structures that people had available to them as they were navigating that experience. And I think I'm a big fan of lived religion as it's preached by the key figures in contemporary religious history and religious studies. And for me, I feel like I'm, I'm inhabiting lived religion 2.0 because I'm actually seeing what happens to people religiously and culturally when the rubber hits the road, when it really matters what religious claims are, when it really matters what 
people believe and how they structure their relationships. How do they behave? What words do they use? What images and concepts do they draw on? What rituals are meaningful to them? And I brought that sensibility of, of the time spent treating patients and thankfully and in 2013 the large majority of our patients actually do recover and get back to home and get back to good strength but there is still a certain proportion of them that do not survive despite all our best efforts and being with them not abandoning them when it looked for life's technologies were not going to work was an important part of what got asking questions of historical documents that were specific to the lived experience of people in antebellum America, particularly in that western frontier. You talk about in the introduction to the book, death presiding over all of human history. But one thing that your book sort of draws out, I think, is that our anxieties or our approaches to death culturally uh, have, have changed over time. And one element of Joseph Smith's prophethood that, that I hadn't really considered quite as much is his often returning to the theme of death and his anxiety, his concern about death. Um, and this would usually happen in the context of funeral sermons that he would deliver uh, in, in these types of situations where death would be on the, on the mind. So was it pretty easy for you to find those types of sources from Joseph Smith? Did you find that to be a, a pretty common theme uh, in his sermons? Absolutely. And Bill Smith at BYU is working on a on an annotated anthology of Joseph Smith's funeral sermons that I think will be a great pleasure uh, to read uh, when it comes time for it to be published. And I think Bill has found, and I have found, and others have found, that this was an incredibly important topic for people. You know, the anthropologist and theologian Doug Davies had had uh, written a book called The Mormon Culture of Salvation that uh, was trying to think through what salvation meant for early Mormons. And it's a book I bumped into uh, as I was just finishing up in evidence. It is on earth. I think he had a couple of insights from a, a formal theological, anthropological perspective that were uh, important and, and even independent of uh, theological or anthropological uh, vistas on this material it's just everywhere and you realize that there was a sort of historiographic collective forgetting uh, that that extended for many decades it you know it began to change in the 19 it tail end of the 1960s into the 1970s but you really have to be ignoring a lot of your primary materials to not be allowing death to be a part of the story that you're telling as an historian of pre-Civil War America. Yeah, it's interesting to see in some of his sermons, he, he would refer to this tomb that he had been planning, right? This tomb, a family tomb or something? Yeah, it was the tomb of Joseph. And it's a reminder that part of how Joseph Smith uh, positioned himself was as a person through whom God allowed the past to be relived. And we talk about restorationism and primitivism, and those are true. It's important to understand the Campbellite and similar contexts in which arises and in which Joseph Smith is uh, heading up the restoration. But it's also remarkable uh, the extent to which Joseph Smith is 
through his very life as he lives it, exemplifying what it means for the past to be relived. And so the tomb of Joseph is his reference to uh, the tomb of Joseph of Egypt, which is described very briefly in the Hebrew Bible. And you know, he nods, he, he in, a, in one says that the Book of Mormon itself uh, proclaimed the importance of having that kind of a sacred tomb. And he understood it as both a, him living as a modern-day Joseph of Egypt, sort of reinstating that ancient patriarchal figure, and uh, made it part of his temple, which is a fascinating thing. You know, Kevin Barney reminded me that corpses were considered so polluted in the Hebrew cultists that they would never have had a tomb uh, on the temple grounds. But, but for Joseph Smith, that notion of pollution was not present. And there's this, there's this strongly cultic element, and by cultic I don't mean these nincompoops that are yelling at Mormons or other new religious movements. I mean specifically related to the ways rituals are performed and the way a church community hangs together around those rituals. So there's clearly an element with the tomb of Joseph of that religious and ritual significance. But then there's also, and there was always present with Joseph Smith also, sense of warm familiarity and hand holding hand and people uh, embracing each other. And there was a sense in which the tomb of Joseph was also the place where the Smith family would awaken in the resurrection and discover each other and would be immediately able to resume their tender intimacies as a loving extended family the moment the first resurrection uh, happened. And so the tomb of Joseph was this fascinating uh, structure that was on the on the Nauvoo temple grounds and he hoped he, he was even trying to get Alvin his older brother Alvin that he looked up to so much he was trying to figure out a way to get Alvin's remains disinterred and then reinterred in the tomb of Joseph he of course was killed under such nasty circumstances that there was no way that they could have interred him in the tomb of Joseph. There were, there's talk. Who knows whether it's true or not? I assume it is because it has to do with buying and selling things. But there's, there were rumors that phrenologists and others would pay a premium to have Joseph Smith's skull so that they could put it on a museum display. So they, they had to hide uh, Joseph Smith's body, and he ultimately was not able to be buried in the tomb of Joseph. Yeah, they. Uh, I think they buried him for a time in the basement of uh, one of the buildings in Nauvoo, right? Yeah, uh, I'm gonna forget whether it was the mansion house or the Nauvoo house proper. You know, it's a little contested, but my guess is that Emma became worried that Joseph's remains would be desired by the apostles or others uh, who were with the apostles, and she had. Uh, Joseph and Hiram removed from their original burying place and moved to a new location and then actually misremembered where they had been placed. And it wasn't until the mid-1920s that a reorganized LDS engineer was able to track down the original tombs. Yeah, and that's when they moved it. Uh, they moved them to their current uh, place. Yeah, right? they had to move them back. They were worried that the Mississippi was going to cut into the area where they had been interred. And so now the, 
the actual bones are uh, under the the grave marker that uh, you can see if you tour Nauvoo now. So let's talk a little bit more about some of the more specific ways that Joseph Smith um, dealt with death and confronted death. You call it the conquest of death. Um, and that's kind of a combination of theological ideas and rituals and beliefs that uh, that all kind of deal with uh, what happens to, to people when they die and, and what will happen in the resurrection and these sorts of ideas. So how do you see Joseph Smith as, as differing from some of the other theological visions of his time? And what are some uh, similarities that he shared with them? That's a great question. Uh, Doug Davies, who uh, is the one that initially popularized the broad notion of death conquest, also uh, referred to it as death transcendence. And, you know, the restoration happens and Joseph Smith lives his life in a complicated but mostly Protestant uh, environment in which the dominant traditions were Calvinism, which was on the wane. And it was on the wane in the way these comprehensive worldviews often are on the wane, but when people decided they needed to come up with a new idea, they did it by attacking some caricature of Calvinism. And the best known of the opponents to Calvinism in the period, or particularly the one with the most relevance in frontier life, was Arminianism. And these are broad terms that can mean a lot of very different things. And at some Level, the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism is a story about the significance of the human will. And specifically, is there a way that a human being could in any way affect her or his salvation? And strict Calvinism says, no, this is not something that's up to a human. This is something that depends exclusively on God's majesty, excellency, and a choice. And the Arminians, even though Arminius himself was not Pelagian, uh, it specifically said, it's not that you could earn your own salvation, it's that you can lose it by backsliding. Uh, as it gets explored through Methodism and in other ways, Arminianism does become much more a story about the role that the human being has in defining its own salvation status. And both of them were death specifically because of the intense focus on the need to either be elect under Calvin or to be uh, under Calvinism or to not ever backslide under Arminianism. And I think the I think the deathbeds of the two broad traditions are are useful for understanding what Joseph Smith found to be problematic in his society. Is this like the the um, this, the holy death? Is this what you're referring to? Yeah, the holy holy death uh, culture broadly was, and and the holy the practice of holy dying or beautiful dying or good dying uh, encompassed both Calvinism and Arminianism in uh, various ways. It, this was just about meeting your death in a way that assured your salvation. And under Calvinism, you had to keep on keeping on because if you didn't, then that was a state had never been elect. And under Arminianism or Methodism, you had to continue on because if you continue on in great piety and uh, introspection and faith, 
it because if you didn't, that meant that you had backslid. And that the problem is that the individual believer was the locus of these battles to assure that you would be saved. And you had to wage that battle until your very dying breath. And Joseph Smith saw that and said that a salvation is not a story about a individual. Salvation is a story of communities of individuals. And B, life is richer and more filled with spirit when we are not constantly worried about whether we have measured, whether we have demonstrated our election under Calvinism or whether we have avoided backsliding under Arminianism. So Joseph Smith's response to the crisis of death was to define a communal rather than an individual approach to salvation and to restore, reveal a ritual system that allowed people to know that it would be okay, that they did not need to worry endlessly about whether they would be saved or whether their children would be saved, but that the revealed rituals of the restoration, they could have the assurance that they would be together again after life, and they could get about the business of uh, living together so that's kind of situating it with um, with some of the more pro- some of the Protestant views, Calvinism, Arminianism. Um, what's interesting is you could you could kind of look at Mormonism as being a Protestant-like sect or a Protestant-like religion, in that it obviously wasn't Catholicism. Um, but at the same time, this Joseph Smith's return to the importance of priesthood and ordinances was a departure from a lot of uh, of other Protestant groups, right? There, there's this sense that his returning to this communal uh, salvation, which is contingent on priesthood authority. There was clear pushback, and he got pushback from Protestants. He got pushback from Emerson and the Transcendentalists. Everybody saw him as an idiosyncratic crypto-Catholic or somebody who was rejecting the fundamental claims of both the Lutheran and the Calvinist reformations. When it comes down to it, and I'm sure people will argue with me, when it comes down to it, the, the Reformation seems to be a story about the primacy of scripture over church and church tradition and the primacy of the individual and the individual's conscience over and against the the early modern Catholic Church, and so when Joseph Smith says, "Well, no, it's it's not just about the biblical canon as you have decreed it. The canon is an evolving canon that evolves under the guidance of living prophets, and it turns out it's not just an individual hammering out the details of belief in his mind as he reflects upon the Scripture. It's this." It's this living, breathing, sacramental restoration. So there are ways in which Joseph Smith appears very Protestant, or that the restoration that comes through him is phrased in Protestant-sounding ways. But when you get down to the innards of the restoration, they are profoundly non-Protestant. And I think if we could step back from the fighting and the posturing about it, we could acknowledge that when many Protestants say we're not Christian, what they really mean is we are unProtestant, and 
we really are un-Protestant. In, in our core beliefs, we do not sound Protestant. And it's okay to embrace the fact that we are not Protestants at the same time that we extend love and understanding and kindness to our Protestant peers. One, one way I think we can do that is just by, you, by looking at history and looking at some of the similarities and differences, kind of what you've done in your project. And you, you bring up the, uh, the language of adoption, this idea of adoption in pre-Civil War Protestant religion. And you trace it all the way back from there to the New Testament in Paul. So, so let's shift over to this idea of adoption and, and kind of give, uh, give listeners the background here um, about the roots of this idea of adoption, how adoption fits into Christianity. Adoption starts in the writings of St. Paul as an explanation of how people who are not Israelite by birth could be heirs of the covenant between Yahweh, we often call him Jehovah or the Lord, but as heirs of the covenant that Yahweh makes with Israel. And so in Paul, adoption is a story about the way Christ becomes the father to the Gentile faithful and through adoption by Christ, people gain or obtain a birthright as Israelites. That's deeply meaningful. And in, in the letter to the Romans, there's such gorgeous language about the spirit testifying to our spirit that we are heirs of God and 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 uh, joint heirs with Christ that um, that I find just deeply, deeply moving because it's a story about relationships and dignity that doesn't depend on who your biological parents are. It doesn't matter what side of the tracks you were born on. It doesn't matter what nation you were born into. Christ, Christ's atonement is fundamentally a story about the potential for all of us to be the children of God in a deeply meaningful sense. And in general, for most of, of creedal Christianity, that's the sense that people maintain around the notion of adoption. There are different distinct variations on that fundamental notion, but in its essence, it's a story about how Gentiles could become Israelites, and they become that through Jesus the Messiah. So you, you trace that up through the Puritans, right? So what are some of the ways that the Puritans incorporated this idea of adoption? And I ask because it's, it's really interesting to see the way that it fades in, in, in Christian thought and then, also, and then in some ways seems to reemerge in some ways with, with Mormonism. Well, the Puritans had a very clearly defined sense of covenant theology, and covenant theology was a very communal theology. Ostensibly, they were hard-nosed, mean, petty people, but the reality is that they were theocrats. They believed that a civil society should be built on the basis of an ecclesial society, and the covenant theology of the Puritans uh, was the notion that there could be a merger of civic society and religious society and family community and networks. And and part of what they realized as they uh, worked through covenant theology was that there would be 
interruptions where there would be a black sheep in the family and if the grandparents loved their grandchildren as they commonly did and were able to get their grandchildren to come into the church but the parents of those grandchildren were unregenerate or were reprobate or had died in their sins so they have to become a way to make sure that the grandchildren could still be a part of the the sacred covenant and the the line of election that came through uh the families and so people were back this thing what do you do when it feels like salvation ought to extend through familial and relational networks but manifestly you have people who defy and deviate from the expected course and disappoint their parents and with the waning of established uh, congregationalism and you know the the remnants of what we think of as puritanism there is a pretty sharp distinction from that uh, but then joseph smith has a, a, a definitely has a sense that there were elements of puritan theology and puritan covenant theology that were uh, important that were important fractures original gospel that needed restoration. When you tie this into Mormonism, you talk about uh, some of the early Mormon discussions on adoption, and you you point to the Book of Mormon as a place where adoption comes up. Um, this is where people make a covenant to uh, be called the children of Christ, his sons and his daughters, and they enter into this sort of family relationship of believers. They take upon them a new name, the name of Christ, and this sort of thing. Um, but it seems like you don't you don't see adoption theology is really taking off in Mormonism for a couple of years. Is is that impression right? I think if you judge by the published documents that um, that uh, the published documents that are most compatible with the vision of adoption that Joseph Smith had in Nauvoo, that you're right. You don't you don't see those documents early on. And whether it was Joseph Smith uh, being called to to further clarify and explore the implications of uh, adoption theology that had been present in prior explanations, or whether they have an alternative explanation, I don't think the documents tell you one way or the other. But there's there's a sense in which is Joseph Smith thinks it through and prays about it and worries over it and gets revelation about it that he he's able to tell more of the story of adoption it's almost like those old paul harvey broadcasts where he says and that's the rest of the story <laughs> joseph smith as he's continuing to grow as a prophet is able to explain the rest of the story about traditional christian adoption there was a part that really surprised me. I didn't expect to see it in there. You have a pretty um, long discussion about patriarchs, the idea yeah. of, of Mormon patriarchal blessings in this and how this ties into the idea of adoption. Um, I think people would be interested to hear about that because today we just sort of think of patriarchs as these people that give us a patriarchal blessing, some kind of like a personalized scripture that just gives us some instruction about our lives, assigns us to a um, you know, to a tribe of Israel or identifies us with the tribe of Israel. But patriarchal blessings you see is playing a more formative role, I think, in, in early Mormon thought of adoption, right? Yeah, I think 
the later 20th century experience of the patriarchal blessing is as you've described it. It's a, it's a prime revelation to you that is a miniature Bible that's relevant to your specific life, that's something that you will turn to in times of need. And that sense of a patriarchal blessing is certainly present in the earliest patriarchal blessing. Look at the theology that Joseph Smith was describing and elaborating to explain what patriarchs were and what their role was. There was actually a lot more to it in the early years, particularly under Joseph Smith, um, but existing after Joseph Smith died. And specifically, patriarchal blessings were one of the early ways that Joseph Smith was trying to communicate this sense that human beings could serve a role as extensions of the Christ or as secondary saviors. That Joseph Smith saw these second saviors as he called, and this was a borrowing, I think, from Obadiah, saviors on Mount Zion. And the early understanding of saviors on Mount Zion was these were the people that would bring others to the joyful reunion at Zion's Mount when the Messiah returned. And there was a sense in which, almost a sense in which Christ had deputized us to be saviors to each other. And not, you know, you can get into trouble, particularly with evangelical Protestants who say, oh, you know, you're trying to demean Jesus and you're trying to human beings are just as good as Jesus. And that's a, really a caricature of what Joseph Smith was preaching. But what he was preaching, I think, was that the purpose of our lives is to be as like Jesus as we can. When you phrase it in those terms, they say, oh, yeah, yeah, of course, that's what we believe. That's what we believe. Well, but what was Jesus doing? Jesus was bringing the covenant. And by the covenant, it's not just an agreement. The covenant was also the operating rules of a community. Christ is bringing a community and forgiveness and love and the opportunity for repentance to all of us to allow us to assemble as his family. The thing that fascinates me in, when you're talking about this is the way that you tie uh, baptism for the dead, patriarchal blessings, and these things, even missionary work, um, with, with a project that goes back in time and forward in time that's that's executed in present time. So with baptism for the dead, you're you're performing ordinances for people who have already lived, but you're also anticipating meeting them uh, in the millennium or in the next world, um, and you both will have received these saving ordinances together. You both can rejoice together. With patriarchal blessings, it's this idea that reaches back through the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, you're connected to a tribe of Israel, but it's also something that projects uh, forward as well to your posterity. Um, in patriarchal blessings would mention the posterity of the person being blessed and that these blessings could be handed on. Um, you know, we talk about children being born in the covenant and this, these sorts of ideas. So these structures that these revelations that Joseph Smith had, they seem to project in, out past and future. Uh, and, and I thought that was really interesting. One of the one of the most interesting things I hadn't considered before was where Joseph Smith, uh, the article of faith says, we believe in evangelists and so forth. 
And if you ask Mormons today, they say, well, yeah, evangelists, you know, we don't have anything that's necessarily called an evangelist. But Joseph Smith said that the patriarch was an evangelist, right? And you, and you provided some connected to these ideas I'm just talking about, you you provide a really interesting interpretation of what he might have meant by that, by an evangelist being a patriarch. So take a second to, to mention that. I thought that was really interesting. So to understand this, I think you understand that Joseph Smith was saying that we as human beings can aspire to spread the light and covenant and community of Christ throughout the world. And there are a variety of ways that we can do it, as you so eloquently summarized, dead, patriarchal blessings, parents' blessings, healing blessings, washings and anointings, and also uh, the tie between someone who brings the gospel to a convert and that convert. And in Joseph Smith's hands, that, that con the connection between a loving parent and a reciprocally loving child is the, the whole story. It's the story of God and Christ. It's the story of Christ and all of us. And it's the story of the relationships that we craft. And when Smith talks about converting someone, bringing the gospel to a person who subsequently embraces it and is baptized, he sees that as creating a relationship that has the kind of durability that it can persist into the afterlife. And in the essay, and, and I think it's probably true, um, that there's that merger of the evangelist as the adoptive parent of the convert and the patriarch as the adopted uh, adoptive parent of the person receiving the patriarchal blessing. And I think that's a parallelism that we have not really explored in part because we've lost track, uh, many of us, of that original theology of the amplifications of Christ uh, through our interactions with each other that are modeled on the tender love of a parent for a child and vice versa. Yeah, you've got a lot of really interesting insights in the book, but that one in particular, I don't know why, but that one in particular just really struck me, and, and it's a question I'd had for a long time. You know, why is why would Joseph Smith equate evangelists and patriarchs? That doesn't make sense. Um, but when you put it in this context of of a missionary becoming a sort of spiritual father or mother to a convert, uh, or or a patriarch becoming a sort of spiritual uh, father to uh, someone he's giving a blessing to. Then then it makes sense within this frame. And I, you know, I I can't say for sure if that's what he had in mind. But but boy, I think you make a really strong case for that. That's that's um, that's one that that I'll that I kind of you know I'll I'll take that for my default position for now. You know, <laughs> I'm always open to be. I think you follow the evidence that you see in the documents, you think carefully about it, you chat with other scholars, and then you propose what you think is a reasonable hypothesis, always recognizing that new information, particularly a large amount of new information and a new theoretical framework can further clarify what it is you've thought. But I, I really think in, in my own faith walk, you know, I'm a believing, practicing Latter-day Saint, and in my own faith, think about that love I feel for my children that is visceral and beyond words and can tie me in knots and can elevate me to a perfect happiness. And I think about the fact that I would die for them and that uh, 
I can't disentangle my identity from them. Now, you can clearly take this into psychologically dangerous paths, and I'm not advocating that, but I think that's supposed to be our model for how we strive to feel about each other, not just our biological children, but about everybody, that we should feel that sort of power in our associations with each other. And I think that's a key element of what Joseph Smith is describing. And with adoption, he raises the role of the will. And I've, I've talked in my own uh, preaching in, in church about a love that is felt and a love that is chosen. And I feel the love that is felt, it's so natural and spontaneous with regard to our children. But there's also a love that we choose. And, and, and I think that the story of our mortal sojourn is understanding how to allow a love that is felt and a love that is chosen to mutually enrich each other so that we will have both that incredibly powerful bond with each other and the ability to bring others into that kind of a bond. It's very easy, and it feels increasingly easy as time goes on, to imagine that the horizons of our world of regard are coterminous with maybe our own fence at our own nice little house, maybe our ward boundaries. But God and Jesus, Prophet Joseph, I think, us well beyond that. And I think the framework of adoption theology makes explicit the role that a chosen love will play in our observance of the gospel. That's actually what led to this interview. Is you, you published an article in a recent issue, the previous issue of BYU Studies on adoption. And this is the BYU Studies article was written on the premise that you see a distinction between your formal historical work and then your perspectives as a believer. You, you, you kind of make a distinction between those, not to say they can be entirely separated from each other, but you know there's, there's sort of a difference um, when you're talking to fellow members of the church or when you're writing a, an academic article or book. So in this BYU Studies article, you're kind of able to reach um, – members of the church who, who think about these types of issues. And, and you, you talk about the idea of, of adoption, but you also talk about spirit birth, and you propose that, that a spiritual adoption model uh, might be more fitting, um, at least to you personally, uh, than spirit birth. And this is the idea that the heavenly parents somehow literally have some sort of procreative act that results in a brand new um, spirit child and, and that sort of thing. So maybe... We only have a few minutes left, but can you talk for a second about um, how these different views came up? There's a view of spirits as born to heavenly parents in some extremely literal way, and one of, uh, of heavenly parents becoming adoptive parents of eternal intelligences. What are kind of the roots of, of that? Well, it, I can't find any contemporary evidence in Joseph Smith's period that suggests this associate with the Pratt brothers and, and ultimately with Brigham Young and William Phelps and others. What I see Smith writing about is a sense in which God organizes intelligences into his family um, and imagery of divine adoption and of us secondary saviors practicing adoption. 
Shortly after Joseph Smith's uh, death, however, you see a fair bit of his lieutenants puzzling through what the meaning of God's literal parenthood of us might be. And in that setting, they tended to take a tack that suggested in an almost Swedenborgian inflection that uh, what we think of as human sexuality would persist into the afterlife and that pregnancy, station, parturition would be, uh, they would be painless, but that they would persist in the afterlife. And as Jonathan Stephen and I were going back and forth in the late aughts, uh, about adoption and thinking it through. We did a, a pair of essays uh, where I did the, the Joseph Smith Smith through uh, Woodruff's ending of uh, adoption as, as we knew it. Um, got to talking about it, it occurred to us that when, when you look at the Smithian documents, they feel adopted and they feel like they're a story about God seeing us and seeing us needing to develop further and knowing that the way we would develop further is in a parental relationship with him and that he then adopts to his family. Uh, and it makes sense. To me. I think the reason that it makes uh, sense to me is that it's a about a love that is chosen, that Christ calls us to love not just spontaneously, but to train ourselves to love and to always be aspiring to broaden the compass of our domestic love um, in, in the noble and, and godly sense. Um, and I understand that there are well-meaning and inspired and inspiring Latter-day Saints who feel like the spirit birth model, as we call it, is is... Uh, the only possible uh, account, and, and I'm not after any kind of argument. I, I don't think that I am uh, an expert on exactly God conducts his private life or even on the details of the shape of heaven. I tend to hear what it seems like God wants us to hear and to try to construct a meaningful, emphatic, here on earth without needing to know all those specific details. But I, I think good Latter-day Saints can either in a spirit birth model or an adoptive model or a hybrid or another model. I don't, I don't think anybody's salvation will be imperiled by that specific uh, belief about theology. But if you do believe in a spirit birth model, I think you still need to have open the possibility that the adoptive model or adoptive broadly, can change the way we think about the intense we should feel for each other, not just for our biological children. I think what's most striking then about this is just the idea that your scholarship, you recognize explicitly in this article, that your scholarship does have direct bearing on your life as a believer and, and of your, your religious views. And I think it's interesting and great that you have the opportunity to explore those issues because I don't think many Mormon Studies folks often get a chance uh, to do that. Um, usually those are the types of connected questions, especially in historical analyses that we, you know, doesn't, it wouldn't really fit in, in in a lot of journals and things like this. So um, I, I hope just to... I, I wrote the history as a historian trying to understood, understand what the document said. And then after I'd written it, I thought about it and I read it and I thought, well, that sounds like 
a reasonably accurate historical representation. And then having written the history with the approach of an historian, I then was able to come to what had been created and think about, well, does this mean anything to me as a believer? And I, I felt like that kind of, it's not a full bracket, but it's a, it's projects. Figure out what the documents say and what they mean according to the standards of history. And then, once you've done the hard work of figuring out what the documents seem to suggest, then bring a believer's eye to that question. And I found, personally, that letting the history take me where the history would, uh, and then thinking what it might mean, that model worked for me and meant that I didn't have to pretend that there was not a believer in me but that I also was able to write a history that was as true to the documents as I could figure out to be and that could make sense to someone who was not a believer. Thanks for joining us today on, on the Maxwell Institute podcast, Sam. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Blair. Turn back my Magellan and please record this final sound.